What up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Comrades Classroom Podcast. The purpose of this project is to raise political consciousness and encourage our listeners to get involved with or form their own abolitionist organization. On this episode, we sit down with the founder of a political education project called Agape Movement. To support their work, be sure to give them a follow on Instagram and get involved. If you're a fan of the political education work we're doing, help us care for our neighbors by kicking over a few bucks every month at patreon.com backslash the people's fund. Excuse me, everyone, I have a brief announcement to make. Jesus was black, Ronald Reagan was the devil, and the government is lying about 9-11. Thank you for your time and good night. Having that dream where you made the white people riot, weren't you? But I was telling the truth. How many times have I told you you better not even dream about telling white folk the truth? You understand me? Shoot. Making white people riot. You better learn how to lie like me. I'm going to find me a white man and lie to him right now. I am the stone that the builder refused. I am the visual, the inspiration that made ladies sing the blues. I'm the spark that makes your idea bright. The same spark that lights the dark so that you can know your left from your right. I am the ballad in your box, the bullet in the gun, the inner glow that lets you know to call your brother son. The story that just begun, the promise of what's to come. And I'm gonna remain a soldier till the war is won. So we're on today uh, with Mel, um, our guest from Agape Movement, and we're super excited to have them on. Um, so the first question really is just to kind of, for folks to get to know you, uh, if you can kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your work with Agape Movement, um, and possibly with uh, people's programs too. Yeah. Um, yeah, so my name is Mel, I use she, her pronouns. Um, and I am, ooh, a little about myself. That's, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, I guess what resonates most deeply with me right now is that I am making a home um, on Ohlone land, which is in the Bay Area in California. Um, and I'm very deeply influenced by um, the East Coast. So I've been kind of thinking about the ways in which the East Coast made me and the Bay has continued to raise me. Um, I am a Black Studies teacher at UC Berkeley. Um, prior to that, I did some organizing work um, in a mostly white organization. Um, and there's a lot to say there. Um, I also, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna stop there unless you want me to say more. <laughs> no, that's perfect. I think that's a perfect, uh, just, you know, a brief intro to you. Um, and and kind of one of the big goals of the of our podcast and especially our interviews um, is to kind of help folks and help ourselves have a, a better understanding of, of what political consciousness is. Um, so when you kind of think about your own political journey, were there any key individuals, experiences or, or moments in in your life that you kind of found that helped you really develop your political consciousness or impacted your that development oh my gosh yeah how long y'all got hey. um, <laughs> every time I think back on like where my political consciousness began it oftentimes comes back to me to like gender and race mm. um, those are things that from from the jump um, I can very distinctly remember experiences um, where I was like, oh, it's because I'm a girl or like, oh, I'm black. Um, and those happen very young, right? So when I was, I lived in Jersey um, with my parents and I have a, this like, my family would know what I'm talking about, but my dad used to drive this like busted up green van that had a weird smell. Um, and then I made the smell worse because 
as a kid, I didn't like, I didn't know. So I took one of those like bed, bath and beyond type sprays. And I like sprayed it all in the carpet of that van. Cause I was like, let me get the smell out of here. And that shit just made it so much worse. Um, but yeah, so he used to like that. We used to drive around in that van all the time. Um, and he used to take us into Newark, New Jersey on the weekends. Cause he would just be like doing shit. Um, I feel like he was always doing some construction shit in Newark, um, on Saturdays and he would leave us in the car, but then we'd have like music playing and, and music has played such a big role in my political journey. Um, and I can talk about that more a little later. Um, but I just have this distinct memory when my dad and I were in the car, um, we were waiting for my brother's soccer practice to be done. Um, and so we were just chilling in the car and he had the radio on and someone, I was maybe like six or seven. Um, and someone was like talking about this man in New York who had gotten shot and his name was Amadou. And I was like, I, what, like, what is going on? Um, and I remember actually like talking to my dad and being like, what happened? Like, what's the big deal? Um, and he was like, oh, they shot this man. Like, however, 36 times or however many times. And I was like, why? <laughs> and there he was like, because he's black. Like he, they said that they thought they saw a gun, but they shot him this many times. Like it was weird. Cause if I were to talk to y'all, like now where I'm at in my political journey, um, compared to my parents, like I have some things to say about how they could be more radical. And also like, it's so wild to me how like that, those are the moments where I think my dad, you know, was experiencing his own trauma as a black man in America, um, as a black immigrant in America, right? So Abner Lima in the New York area and Amadou Diallo in the New York area, um, both, you know, black immigrants, right? Who, who were murdered um, and, yeah, that was a moment where I realized I was black, right? Um, and it still didn't really didn't really sink in with to me. Um, and then you know there were silly moments, right? I, I guess this is what people call microaggressions. Um, but there was also like these silly moments where I was in like the first grade and um, I had a very multicultural um, group of friends who I sat with at lunch in in the um, in like the third or fourth grade or something, and there was this um, East Asian girl who I used to eat, eat lunch with and she had a bag of Skittles. And so if you know me, you know, I hate M&Ms. Like M&Ms actually make me gag, um, but I love me some Skittles. So she had these Skittles and my parents would like never let us have sweets in the house of any kind. So we're at lunch and all of a sudden this girl starts giving me her purple Skittles. Um, and I at first I'm like, ew, are these M&Ms like the brown ones? No, I don't want to eat these. Um, but then I noticed their Skittles and I'm like, oh, does she realize like what she's giving away? Um, and so I just started taking the purple Skittles and eating them. And then like after a minute, she was like, oh, yeah, I'm giving you these ones because like that's that's your cult. That's you. And I don't like them. And I was like, oh, I mean, as a kid, I actually was just like, don't give me your Skittles. Um, but like looking back on that, I'm like, oh, shit, like you racist as fuck. Uh, wait, can I cuss on here? Yeah, yeah, of course. Sorry. <laughs> no, of course. Yeah, Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, the same thing happened happened with like I was my I was hella gendered. Like my my growing up experience was was hella gendered in all the ways from the fact that like my brother was doing soccer and I was sitting in the car with my dad waiting for him to finish practice, right? Um, but also like we were just talking about before this how like big of a basketball fan I am. So like clearly despite their efforts, it didn't work. Um, but I was like, yeah, I had a, I had a pink room and I didn't even like the color pink and I did ballet and I was like, I would dread going to ballet every, every Saturday. Um, but you know, that's just, yeah. So those are the main things I think about, about like where my political journey started. Um, as far as experiences go. And, and since then it's been, huh, wow, so many, so many things, so many people. Um, yeah, so many people, I don't, 
even know where to begin. Um, no, I mean, I, oh, go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I really, uh, I appreciate that actually, because you're kind of, right? Like, I feel like you're kind of explaining how these things, it's not easy to pinpoint, right? And even if, when we're talking about like trauma and, and things that we, we, or the things that sparked our political consciousness or our political journeys, like it can be, right? Like something that's violently traumatic or something like you're talking about like these lesser microaggressions, mm -hmm. but like they carry some sort of trauma with you, right? So like, I just like enjoy and appreciate how you're outlining it. Like it's, it's not always easy to pinpoint these things as one thing, but it sometimes exists or most, and most of the time exists on a spectrum. So, um, yeah. Go ahead. Um, and I can keep talking. Honestly, um, I do. I do want to want to pinpoint a few other moments. Um, yeah, of course. So, I moved to Florida um, before, sometime like before I started high school. So I ended up doing like all of my high school years where I played basketball. Um, and all of my undergrad years um, and some of my grad years in Florida. Um, and that was an interesting experience of like, oh, I'm in the South, but I was like in South Florida, which is not really like the South um, because there are actually just hella people who come from the Northeast, right? That go and end up living in South Florida. And then like the other percentage of folks who live out there is like hella, um, immigrants from the Caribbean um, and from like the West Indies. So yeah, even, even then I was still not really ever in like fully white spaces, um, which is so interesting to me considering like what my educational journey was. Um, and how I kind of continued to, despite the fact that I was in white places, continued to put myself in non-white like spaces within that, right? So I was in all the AP classes in high school and it's like hella white people in that. And like, that was what I was on um, from 9 a.m. or high school was hella early. What was it like 7 a.m.? to like 3 p.m. I cannot even imagine. Um, like that's what I was on. And then as soon as that was over, I was like with the homies playing basketball and it was like niggas. Like that's who I surrounded myself with outside of, outside of my classroom. And for some reason I was like able to maintain, able to, to, I think one thing I've always been really good at is like being who I want to be in whatever space I'm in. Um, and I honestly can't tell you where I learned that. Um, probably my, my parents. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was like, I can say that though I experienced the racism and the anti-blackness and all the microaggressions, right? I experienced all that shit in the AP classes of people being like, oh, what is she doing here? Or um, especially as I'm in as I'm now an educator, like the oh, this is what happened. So in eighth grade, it was when we were supposed to go into our first year of, of high school, right? And so we're picking classes. Um, and at that point, I had gotten like all A's in all my classes. Um, and I was also very quiet and very introverted, but there was one class where there was another, um, I had a friend in that class. Like I had another student of color in that class who I would talk to all the time in class and I would get in trouble all the time um, in class for talking and just like goofing around. But at the end of the day, I had an A in that class, period. So, um, towards the end of the semester, like the teachers are signing off on, oh, here's the classes you're gonna take next year, right? And if you know anything about education and like the high school experience, like everyone says, and this is very true, like your freshman year, as far as like setting you up for success through um, like retention and through like college and your GPA, right? And all that shit that matters. 
um, is one of your most important years, um, like your freshman year and then your junior year. Like that's those are the years that you really got to be on your shit. Um, and so my eighth grade chemistry teacher was like, oh, anyone who has an A or B in my class and who also is taking pre-calculus right now and has an A or B in that class will automatically get signed up to be in biology one honors for their first year, for their ninth grade year, right? And so I'm like, all right, bet. That's like, I meet the criteria. Like she said the criteria out loud in class and I was like, okay, cool, I meet the criteria. Um, and then she signed me up for integrated science, like regular integrated science, right? So there's integrated science, there's integrated science honors, there's biology and there's biology honors, right? So I'm supposed to be in biology honors and this teacher signed me up for integrated science. Um, and I'm just like, all right, whatever. I don't care. I don't like science anyway, period. Um, so literally I go to school, I go to my ninth grade year and I'm in this class for half a semester and I don't care. Like the first nine weeks I'm chilling. I'm just like, yes, this is great. Like do what I need to do. Um, because I'm also a child and like, <laughs> I don't give, like, I really don't care. Um, and then eventually like I got bored of the class, um, nine weeks in. And I was like, wait, actually, like, this isn't working for me. And um, like, I can't, I can't work in this, in this like space right now. Um, and so I went to my mom and that's one thing that like my mom has always been really good about is like listening to me when I, when I'm asking about like education type stuff. And so I went to my mom and I was like, Hey, can you get me out of this class? Like, I can't, I don't want to be in this class anymore. Um, and so it took like half a year and I had like missed a half a year of shit. Right. And so what they ended up doing was they moved me into, um, for the second, second half of the year, an integrated honors class. Um, and like, it was dope, right. That was fine too. Um, I got bored of that class very easily. And like, um, someone who went on to be my first boyfriend was in that class. So, you know, I wasn't doing shit in there, um, other than just like, passing notes to him and like all that, whatever. Um, and, and it's, it's wild to me. Cause like, to this day, if people ask, I'm like, I don't like science. Like, I don't like it. I don't care about science. I'm not interested like in anything. Um, and, and I love what I do. Right. And also there are some days where I'm like, what if the reason you don't like science is because of that, like racist ass, ass experience you had, in, in high school, like maybe you would have been exposed, right, to a science class that actually like sparked your interest and sparked your imagination and made you feel like you wanted to be there and you wanted to be learning and you wanted to be focused, right? And I noticed that like, I tell people that I like math and they look at me like sideways. I don't use math in my career at all, but I like math because I'm, I'm realizing also I've always had like really good educators in, in the math field. Um, so I was definitely not expecting to tell that story, but I, I'm, I'm glad I did, um, because what I do now and what I, what I see myself as now is an educator. Um, and so it feels really important for me to also be able to reflect back on, well, what were my, what were my educational experiences that politicized me? Um, and that's not the only one, right? That's, that's not the only one, um. No, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I think that shit's hella real too. Like, I, I mean, I can remember um, the same shit. Like, I, thinking back now on on like what pushed me away from science. Like, I know it was because like my parents and my family was like the only thing you're gonna do is be a doctor because they make hella money. Mm -hmm. Like, the only thing you're gonna do is be a doctor because they make hella money. And that was the shit. Like, they pushed me into science classes. I even applied to college. Like, and like started in chemistry. Um, but like, I never like making money was never a thing to me like it never that was never important like I like to do work and I like to uh, engage in things but doing work just for money like that shit was never important to me so I like I dropped science hella quick um so no I, I think that's that's valuable as hell to be able to look back and kind of understand how we navigated education and like the violences that exist within it as well mm -hmm. yeah um, go ahead because yeah hella violent because I had I had 
for whatever is, you know what it is. Um, I'm the, I'm the daughter of immigrants. Right. And, and that's a whole experience is I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about how, like I was in elementary school, like looking up legal jargon and like typing shit for my parents. And like, like, like I've been doing this shit. Like I've been low key in adult spaces since I was like eight, nine years old. Um, and so I think that also is what kind of taught me to advocate for myself. Cause it wasn't like my mom, like my mom was like, pretty much, I was a good kid. I didn't, I didn't cause any trouble for my, my parents. Um, and so they kind of left me alone, honestly, um, which is, which has like good and, and bad things to it. Um, and can like speak to that through like my healing journey. But honestly, like it was because I went to her and I was like, I don't want to be in this class. And then she went to the school and she like talked to my counselors and shit like that. Right. But like, not everyone, one has those resources. Not everyone um, has a parent who has the time to go out to a school and be talking to counselors. Right. Like not everyone even knows like, right. Not everyone even knows that not everyone knows their worth. And that is wild to me. Like, that's what I try to do as an educator now is like, I want my students to know their worth and to be filled with like dignity and to know like, nah, what you're not going to do is this because I know what I deserve. Right. And like, I'm really glad that I had um, that, whatever that was in high school. Cause, cause I also could have just let it ride. Right. I could have let it ride in so many ways. Um, and and I recognize that like as a privilege that I've had. I appreciate that. And, and just to, to transition a little, uh, I picked up on one thing you said, it might've been a, a little further back, but you, you, you mentioned that you uh, at least disagree somewhat with your parents and wish that they were a little more radical. Um, and, and I kind of, and not to poke at your parents at all, but just to ask about where, where did you then find that radicalization and and where do you kind of see the value of, of political education, um, especially when it comes when we're talking about like a revolutionary struggle um, and like understanding our own history and understanding our own identities and stuff like that. Um, dang, you don't get me in trouble. I can't say. <laughs> um, honestly, though, like and I've actually told my my mom this more recently, like my parents, like my, my ancestors, um, and them, them telling me the stories of my ancestors, um, plays a huge role in like where I'm at today. Um, because even before I was like radicalized or knew what an African was or knew what a communist was, right. Or knew any of these, these terms or intersectionality or about like, rebellions before I even knew about like Martin Luther King Jr. Honestly, like I knew my culture, which was um, my parents are from Haiti. They're both from Haiti. And what I knew was like every January 1st, we turn up and we make this soup and we vibe and we remember, we remember the first free like African Republic in the new world, right? We remember Haitians who literally their motto was which means chop off their heads and burn their houses. Like that's the shit I was just learning um, indirectly, right? I, I wasn't like soaking it in as, as like a little militant or anything. I was just like, oh, this is what we do because and this is why we do it, right? Um, I didn't really care for the soup as a kid, right? And and um, didn't really understand the meaning, right, of it. And now um, also know that like, oh, this is because like my people were enslaved. Um, and like, that's fucked up. <laughs> and I would do the same shit too, right? Like they they took their freedom right? They took their freedom from the colonizers. And then they were like, and we're going to rub your faces in it. We're going to rip the white out of the French flag and sew that shit together and literally be like, fuck whiteness. We have, we have 
um, desecrated your bullshit flag, France. We're going to cook this shit and we're going to eat it ourselves. We're going to dance on your graves. We're going to cut your heads. We're going to burn your houses. And I know I sound like wild as shit, but like that's low key what I was learning. Um, and I was also learning like my mom was the main um, breadwinner um, in our in our family growing up after my dad got laid off um, when I was younger. And so I was also learning that like, you know, women do this shit, period. Like the women, the woman is, is in charge always. Um, that's the shit I was learning um, indirectly. My mom would tell me about, um, she's the oldest of six um, and she's the woman and lived a very, very like gender role type society growing up in Haiti. Um, and so like for her, she had to, she literally had to fight for her education. Like after a certain age, they were like, oh, you don't need to go to school anymore. Like you are going to be here taking care of the rest of your siblings, right? The second oldest was a boy and he's the only boy in the family. So, you know, he got like all, all of the things that my mom didn't get. Like she was probably doing that shit for him, right? Um, and then she would tell me the story about how like she rebelled against her dad hardcore and she would like continue to rebel until fine. And this happened every year, she said, and she would continue to rebel until her dad was like, all right, fine. Like we'll enroll you in school this year. And she's like, sometimes she would start school like three, four months late, but like she would go to school that year. So like, Every time I'm like low-key being difficult or being hella militant, I'm just kind of like, but bro, like this is what you taught me and this is what I love about you. And this is what like I strive to be is, is that kind of that kind of person. Um, and then outside of that, right, I, I've been able to, when I was an undergrad, right, I did, I was hella involved. Um, so I did one of those diversity social justice retreat type things. I went as a participant one year and like my life was changed. Um, and then the next year I was one of the facilitators for it. And, you know, my life was changed again. Um, and I like started to learn about identity then. Right. So I was, I was kind of entering this idea of like, oh, there are different identities and they matter. Um, and no one should, should experience harm or violence because of an identity that they hold. Um, so that's kind of where I, where I started to move when I was in college um, and, you know, there was some black shit that happened too, right? So I was also beginning to think about my blackness. And what I mean by black shit is like, I think everyone in your college experience is probably, if you're a black person, like there's going to be some fraternity that does blackface, um, that throws like a blackface party. Um, there's going to be some fraternity that like all their members are like out here shouting the word nigga. Like there's going to be some of that um, when you're in college. And so like, yeah, I had one of those experiences and, and, you know, did, did my angry college student organizing thing, um, at the time. Um, and I started to think like, I think I always knew I was going to do something education related. Um, so I was leaving and I was like, I don't really know what I want to do. Um, but like, I don't really want to leave this space quite yet. So I ended up someone, so someone once told me I was going to be in college forever and low key, I guess they're right. Um, but I ended up tacking on a, a master's in entrepreneurship just to be able to stay, um, on campus, um, for another year. And to this day, sometimes I forget I have that shit. Um, but also it has been useful. Um, but that was that was also a politicizing experience for me, because before then I was like in, as I mentioned, like high school, like I, I was in spaces where I was seeing people who looked like me and I was seeing people of color regularly. And those that's who I was hanging out with um, when same thing in college. Right. I was I was creating those experiences for myself. And then all of a sudden I'm in an entrepreneurship program and this hella white people. And I find myself in a creative entrepreneurship class where our professor prompt, prompts us and asks us to think of a creative way to deal with houseless folks in the downtown Gainesville area um, because something wants to be built there or whatever. I don't know, something racist essentially. Um, and 
I'm sitting in this classroom and I'm literally one, I have a cohort of about 34 or 40 folks. And it's like, I'm the only one saying shit, which people like literally brought up the idea of, of like killing people. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, and that's when I had the moment where I was like, oh, like white people are on some other shit and like rich white people are on some like other, other shit. Um, because what? Um, and then, and then, um, I went to Charleston, South Carolina. Um, so that was like my entrepreneurship experience in a nutshell. Um, and then I went to um, Charleston, South Carolina, because from there, I actually like found a job that seemed dope um, doing community organizing with like a, nation, a national organization that uses like the Alinsky model, um, which uh, I guess like a really brief explanation of what that model is, is essentially it's like the tradi a, tra a very traditional way of organizing. So imagine you're taking, it's like, what diversity is compared to like what abolition is, right? So the Alinsky model is like wave one or a white man made up the Alinsky model there. Um, so I think, wow, I hope I'm not wrong about that one. I'm pretty sure. Um, so they use that model and, and we're really like in religious spaces, spiritual spaces. Um, and so we, we worked mostly with um, Christian organizations there was um, a mosque that got involved like towards the end of my time there. And um, there was two um, Jewish groups who we, we had involved with our work um, and then would occasionally kind of collaborate with some more spiritual groups um, outside of that work who weren't necessarily members of our organization. Um, and so I was in Charleston the year that um, Mike Brown was murdered. So that was 2014 and I'm the only black organizer on the staff. So I work, my, my supervisor is a white woman and my colleague is a white woman. Um, and I'm also like new, fresh out of college, like not really sure. Um, making friends as an adult is hella hard. So I'm also like just trying to like find community um, because most of the folks who I was um, working with within these, these religious and spiritual spaces were pretty like they were, they had, they had like kids, they had grandkids. Like we weren't necessarily going to be hanging out together after work or on the weekends or anything. Um, and so, yeah, Mike Brown was, was murdered in Ferguson and, uh, I had already, I had experienced the heartbreak of Trayvon Martin, um, the summer before, I think, or two summers before, um, and I remember that also, right? Cause I actually watched the trial. Um, I'm not watching this Derek Chauvin bullshit right now. Um, but I, I had experienced, I had watched that and, and I had seen them, them, them questioning Rachel Gentile. I'll never forget her name. This, this Haitian, this black Haitian woman from Miami, Florida, right? From South, South Florida, like one of my homies pretty much. And I would hear the way that they were questioning her and the way that the media was portraying her. Um, I had a white roommate at the time who, after it all happened, who actually was from Sanford, Florida, um, and who has police people in, in her family. Um, and as it was all going down, like she said something like, oh, well, you know, you know, no one really knows what happened or like he was defending himself. She said some shit that like really triggered me, but I didn't, I did, I don't think I knew, I, I didn't know those words then. Um, but I know that like, I felt heartbreak that summer, right? And so now I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, Mike Brown is murdered and I'm by myself. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm a community organizer. Like that's my job. That's what you know, my little paycheck that I get every month, I was like hella poor. And when I was in Charleston, um, like I was using my credit card to, to buy food, um, regularly, um, because that salary was just not, not it, um, to be a full-time organizer. Right. Um, but anyways, so 
so I start to, to reach out, you know, there's some groups that are doing, um, different movements, right. They're doing different things. Um, and I go to one of them and I like, someone asks like, if, if I'll, if I'll talk like, and ah, someone asks if I'll be interviewed, right. Um, for like this newspaper article they're writing. And all they ask is like, essentially, like, can you tell me like why it's important to say Black Lives Matter, right? And so that's like the basic 101 shit that I was back on. And I said like the basic sentence of, oh, it's important to say Black Lives Matter instead of all lives matter because we know that all, that white lives matter and, you know, Black lives need to be uplifted. Like I said that, that the most non-controversial statement, period, in my opinion. Um, and the news article went out and I was chilling. Like I was, it was a Friday. I was on my way home. Um, I had just spent my, I had just used my credit card to buy like a good meal um, from somewhere. Um, like I, I treated myself and I, my boss calls me all of a sudden and she was like, like, what 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 like you talk there's this article that has you quoted and I'm like yeah I did that like that's me um and she and then she was like freaking out and she was like this isn't like I I kind of I picked up on the tone of her voice and I was like oh she's like pressed for for this this tidbit and the fact that it's associated with me um because we work with so many different congregations in the community, right? And we don't want to we don't want to do anything to upset anyone within any of the congregations. Um, and what I mean by that is, is Charleston is a very black and white town, um, and it's very typical um, as far as um, the wealth gap. So there's hella wealthy ass, beautiful churches in downtown Charleston that are mostly white or all, actually not mostly, sorry, all white. Um, and then we have like your black churches, right? And so what was codedly being said to me is we don't wanna make them mad. We don't wanna make the downtown churches upset um, because one of their organizers is saying black lives matter. Um, and that was wild. and. I was confused, right? I still didn't have words or anything, but I was just like, mm, this doesn't seem right. Um, and so then I was like, all right, bet, and hung up. And she was like, we'll talk about it more on Monday because we have our staff meetings on Monday. So I like hung up and then I had the whole weekend to think about it. And um, and this is another piece where I'm just like, barely glad that for whatever reason, like I've I've always been like, no, if this feels like what needs to happen, then this is what, what needs to happen. Um, and I'm not gonna compromise my integrity or my morals or my values. And so I got there and I was with my boss and this is my first real job out of college. I'm like 22 years old, 21 years old, something like that. And I'm sitting here and they're like, yeah, so we just want you to like, no, like obviously this can, you can be in these spaces, but like, we just don't think that you should be speaking um, yada, yada, something. And I was just like, okay. Um, and, and then they asked me like, what do you think? And I was just like, yeah, I would, I would do it again. I would do it again. I don't think I did anything wrong. And if someone were to ask me if I would change anything about the way I did this, then I would say no. Um, and then we left it at that. And, um, yeah, that was dope. That was, that was, I think now, you know, looking back now that I have words, I'm like, oh, that was an organizing experience where there was no intersectionality happening, right? It was, it was, I felt isolated. I was feeling the microaggression and the anti-Blackness coming up, right, in those spaces. Um, I was feeling the massage noir coming up of, um, oh, Melissa's being an aggressive Black woman and like, um, I was feeling silencing, right? My narrative, my voice being silenced. Um, gaslighting was happening, right? I have all these words now, but then I was just like, I don't know what's going on, but I know I don't want to be here anymore. Um, and so at that at that point, I started like, I felt really bad because I had signed a three-year contract with them. And I like agonized over it because I was like, I have to fulfill my contract. I can't, I'm not allowed to leave. But I also didn't want to be there. I didn't find community. And I had felt all of those words that I just said, right? Um, 
And so I was like, all right, I want to keep doing this kind of work, but I want to do it with, with my people. And at the time I thought my people was like, oh, younger people. Um, so I started applying to grad schools um, for higher education. Um, I also low-key started applying to law schools. I took the LSAT and everything. Like I legit was trying to get out of there. Um, like I use my work time to study low key for the LSAT every now and then. Um, so yeah, I did that and then ended up in Michigan for grad school, um, in higher education. And that's where, that's where I started to pick up some terms. Um, and that's where I started to pick up my, my love for organizing and like the study of organizing and the theory and the practice of organizing. Um, and that's where I started to really come into my, my politic around my blackness um, and like really begin to like define and develop my facilitation skills um, and my skills around critique um, and specifically facilitation in in direction of action, right? Um, so I was in a dialogue facilitation space, but even then I was like, nah, this isn't enough. Like we can't just be dialoguing. Like we need to, we need to do some shit. So how do we bring dialogue and organizing together? Right. Um, that's something that I think about very deeply. And that is still important to me to this day. I think um, facilitation skills are something that are hell important for every organizer. Um, so like, that's what I started to do. Um, and even then, like I, I got hella into facilitation and dialogue and I was like, dope, this is, this is it, right? This is what I want to do now. Um, and so when I started interviewing for jobs after I graduated, um, oh, sorry, actually before that, I had one professor named Yazir Henry. Um, and this is, this is, again, I've always taken my education into my own hands. So if I'm bored by some shit, I will go figure out what I need to do to not be bored. Um, so I always joke around about how like my cohort, my, my, um, my higher ed master's cohort, like they were always asking where I was at. Um, because after like the first semester, I just went off and I was like, I actually like these classes feel boring. This doesn't suit me. So I was taking like hella classes in other, um, other departments. Um, so I took a policy class with this, um, professor named Desir Henry, who, is from South Africa um, and was one of the folks who has done um, and been a part of the Truth and Reconciliation um, Council work out there. And he is such a brilliant mind. Um, and I just remember like being in his class and things were just going over my head. Like he would say shit and I was like, I have no idea what this man is saying, but I know it's right. Um, like he was saying, like he was saying global south and he was talking about um, the global north and he was talking about violence and silencing and truth and reconciliation and um, narratives and all this shit. Um, and I was just I actually just found my notes from his class the other day um, and I was looking through them and it's so dope because like I understood the material while I was in it, but I still hadn't like figured out how it was going to apply to my life. And now I'm reading it and I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, this is it. Um, I kind of want to go back and talk to Yazir again now that I know what the fuck he's saying. Um, so when I talk about like influential people, Yazir Henry is definitely um, one of those people um, as an educator. Um, and it's a damn shame I didn't get him until literally my last semester of my last degree in schooling. Um, I'm sure there's other people I can think of too. Um, but yeah, he's definitely one of them. And so, yeah, when I started applying for jobs, I was like, oh, I kind of, I'm like, I was like, I want to be in multicultural spaces. And then I also applied and I want to be on the coast. Like I need to be by water. Um, water is so healing for me. Um, and so I applied to California because then I was like, oh, I'm gonna go to Cali. Like I'm gonna be Cali vibes, cute, whatever. Um, and then I applied to the Northeast because I was like, I'm trying to get back to, to like Jersey, New York area. Um, and I randomly applied for a job at Irvine with their Black Resource Center. And I went there and that shit changed my life. I didn't get that job, but just off the interview alone um, of what it would mean to be 
that person for black people, right? In that kind of role for black folks. Um, like mid search, I was like, oh, I wanna be in a black resource center. Like I wanna be in black space. Like I don't wanna be in multicultural space. Um, but you know, that was also a new decision. And also I was just trying to get employed. Um, so I ended up getting um, two offers, one on the East Coast from a multicultural space and then one on the West Coast from a black space. And um, yeah, I was just so excited. Um, so I ended up, ended up um, being able to work at UC Berkeley with their African-American Student Development and Fannie Lou Hamer Black Resource Center um, space. And that's what I do now um, for work, for, for money, right? Um, and that has been such a dope experience um, and has brought so many more political, um, political learnings and growths into my life. Um, wow, thank y'all for listening. <laughs> no, of course, of course, and I appreciate all of that. Um, and I think it, it, I mean, it leads, well into the next question, right? Which talking about um, things that you've learned. Um, and like, I know right now, cause I'm, I'm, I'm in it with you, we're taking this multi-week course with Elder uh, Jaleel Mutakin. Um, and I guess just the question I have for you is, is what are some of your biggest takeaways so far? Um, being being able to share space um, with Jaleel Mutakin and, and, and those folks. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You can sit with it for a sec too, I know. It's, it's been a lot. <laughs> it's so it's such a um it's such an invaluable experience. Like I think so. One of the first things, like the first week, um, I have it written down somewhere, but the first week of, of his course, Jaleel was like. Yeah, so the goal of my course is that y'all will leave here and have connected with each other and be building out programs. And I was like, bet. Like, and that's that's where I had gotten in my political journey, right? To where I could hear that message and be like, all right, I hear that. And that's what I'm gonna do. And that's what I'm here for, right? Um, and so that's to answer what's your biggest takeaway. Like that's been my biggest takeaway every week. I, every other week I go into that course and I'm like, all right, how are we building? Right. How are we, how are we doing what Jalil is asking us to do? Um, and the reason is because it is such an invaluable experience, right. Um, to, to be in space with an elder of the black liberation army, um, to be in space with a former political prisoner, right. So I'll be I'll be hella goofy on Twitter. Um, I'm like very into stan culture because it's funny to me. Um, and so I'll be tweeting things like George Jackson is goat and like Asada's Bay, like all of that shit. And like that's real. Like that's how I feel. Um, and also like I read their work and I engage with their texts and their ideologies and um, and like they were really out here trying to get us free like every day. Um, and, and on the one hand, it's like kind of disrespectful to their legacy. There was something um, I had posted this on my Instagram earlier and someone had said it in a video, but like it is our ancestral obligation, right? Um, I want to find the exact saying. Sorry, it might take a minute. It is, we have an ancestral obligation to do what's right. And like, I believe that shit deeply. Like, I know that. I know that because I am, I have been fortunate enough to be raised in a household where I heard at least once a year about the struggle in Haiti, right? And the liberation of those people and the way they fought for their freedom. And I know that because there are people still here, to, there are people who didn't make it right? There are people who are not free. We just lost Chip Fitzgerald the other day, right? There are people like Asada who like, yeah, she, she like, she free of the United States, I guess. But like, is she really free if she hasn't gotten a chance to like connect with her family, right? And like be in the States with her people, right? Is she, is she really free if she is still the most wanted person in America, right? 
Um, George Jackson died for this shit. Like George Jackson and Jonathan Jackson, 17 year old Jonathan Jackson. Like, and the thing is like, okay, George and George and Jonathan were like low key on some other shit. But like, the thing is like, people aren't necessarily coming in here to die for this shit. Like, they're coming here just to be free. Like, we just want to be free. We just want to be liberated. We just don't want to have to worry about what we're going to eat tonight or whether or not we're going to find somewhere to sleep or whether or not we're going to have access to clean water um, or whether or not we're going to be like murdered in our beds at night. Right. So like, that's all we want. That's like pretty low, low grade expectations, I think. Um, and, and people have sacrificed so much. Right. Um, just off of that alone. Um, and, and there are people here to this day who are still political prisoners, right? Who, who won't get the opportunity to do what it is Jaleel is doing. Also, like, Jaleel does not have to be doing this. This man just spent 50-something plus years in prison, so much time in solitary confinement, right? If anyone, if anyone has earned their right to like take a break from this shit is him. But like, he's here and he's giving us this knowledge. And he is like, he believes in us. Like, that's hella dope. It's like, oh, he believes in our ability to like keep this work going. So yeah, I like, um, I value that space so much. Like, um, and yeah, just wanna, just wanna, do the, I want to do the work. Right. And he, and that's the other thing, like he wrote a whole book on, he gave us, he literally laid this shit out for us. So it's can't even be like, Oh, I don't know what to do. Or I don't know where to start. Like, bruh, it's all there. Um, and if you can't, like, if you don't have access to like reading or whatever, like we will do audio books. Like we have this space where folks can talk about it. Like it's all here. And that's why the political education piece is so important, right? It's because like, we need to get whatever your learning style, we need to get people into this shit, but like it's there. And like, I think a lot of times people try to act like it's like liberation or our freedom or abolition is like a pipe dream of like, oh, that's that's not real. That could never happen. But it's like, nah, it's it's real. We just have to work for it. That's it. That's all you have to do. And like Jaleel for, for only $65, this man is, is telling us how to get free period. Yeah. Shit. I'm with it. <laughs> yeah. Straight up for $65. For <laughs> <laughs> um, if we can, I mean, we'll transition kind of into the, the final set of questions. Um, and I'm really, I mean, I'm really excited to learn more. So if you could tell us a little more about uh, your work and, and your development of Agape Movement, um, history of the organization, your goals, um, and like, yeah, just kind of tell us more about that because I'm hyped to learn. Yeah. Um, so Agape Movement is another thing that has been a long time coming, I think. Um, as I mentioned, like education has always been in my future. Um, Political education has always been in my future. Um, love has always been a deep part of this work and a deep part of my life. Um, the first tattoo I got, I got back in like 2016, I think. Um, and it's behind my ear and it says agape. Um, and this, I didn't know anything about um. Asada Shakur, like I hadn't read Asada yet. I hadn't, I hadn't read, you know, the radicals and the revolutionaries talking about the connection of, of, of our revolution to love. I hadn't read any of that. Um, but I knew that love was important. Um, and I knew that love was more than just a feeling or like a romantic thing, right? I knew that it was like, nah, you gotta love the people. Like you have to, you have to have a deep love for people. Um just cause, right? And that's that's something that that's something that um that's something that's important. That's all I knew when I first did that. Um and since then it's evolved into 
um, I think part of my politic, right? So I'm going to just read from, from the Instagram page because every time I try to talk about it, I'm like, I don't know how to talk about it. And also like, I sat with this for a really long time, like the mission, the vision, the core work, the values, like I've sat with this for so long and it's been like years in the making um, that I always just like, Melissa, just read what you wrote because you wrote it for a reason. Um, so yeah, Agape Movement engages the liberatory practice of community and love to imagine a future rooted in ideals of abolition and transformative justice. Our work centers black and brown indigenous communities. Love is the practice and community is the vessel. Our vision is abolition and African liberation. And our core work is resourcing black and brown indigenous communities with tools for our collective liberation. Core values, justice is love and practice. Accountability is love and practice. Healing is love and practice and revolution is love and practice. Um, and really what I mean by this is like, the, this, the revel, like you need community. I'm always gonna cap for relationship building and coalition building and community building as the foundation of a successful organizing strategy. Um, if you don't have community, if you don't have trusting community, if you don't have like, like comrades, right? They're called comrades for a reason. Like you, you don't have your comrades, then there will, the, the revolution will not be successful, right? And that just, that doesn't just mean like, oh, like I, like we're cool. What it means is I accept you for all of who you are, right? So when we think about intersectionality and identities, that's one piece of it, right? What it also means is, I love you so much that I will be striving to make you the best person, right? And so we will be in, in community with, with each other and we will hold each other accountable in loving ways, right? To be the best versions of ourselves. What it also means is like, damn, I care about you. Like, I care about how you're doing. Do you have food? Do you have water? Do you have shelter? Like, these are things that I'm committed to, to, to having a stake in, in your life, right? If you are my comrade. Um, and then also like your wellness, like how you doing? You good? Like, do you need to talk? Like, can you be here right now? Like, I, I love you wholly. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at is like, this is, this is, oh. And then the last piece is like, I always, I always relate community building and relationship building to COINTELPRO shit because when you build something like real and you actually not, and you actually are accounting for all of these things, right? You're accounting for the people's needs. You're accounting for any way that someone might be bought off, right? Cause like, if I'm, if I'm just a like, person who is hella in debt and about to lose my house and like doesn't have access to food and yada yada blah blah and you telling me to come join the revolution to fight against the government but then the government is talking about like oh here's fourteen hundred dollars then like of course like fuck you like <laughs> i'm gonna go get this fourteen hundred dollars period um and I recognize that, right? And so, and so, like, if I am able to recognize that, if I'm able to recognize the ways that that the system um, can manipulate and can resource people, then I'm also taking the responsibility of being like, oh, I need to be working towards resourcing my people. Then, right? I need to be the one who's stepping into that role of resourcing my people because I can't have them relying on the government. Um, because, and that builds trust, right? That builds relationships. That builds the army. Um, one of my, one of my comrades, um, Jordan once told me, he said, this is probably the greatest compliment I've ever been given in life. I don't know if I told him that, but he literally was like, yeah, Melissa, like she's building the army. Um, and like, wow, that was, wow. Anyways. Um, and specifically black and brown indigenous communities. Right. So I am, I am African and that's where I'm going to do my work. Right. That's where I'm going to, my cup poureth over, right? Um, and only poureth over, not pour if I don't have nothing to give. 
um, it's gonna go into, into the African community, into our liberation. Um, but also like this work, right, um, is, is bigger than that. The, the, the work of getting liberated is recognizing all colonized and imperialized people. Um, and so kind of what I, like how I was defining that and, and things that I've been doing, right? So I've been learning and reading hella black shit um, but I'm also like really trying to figure out like how, how is this, how is this operating for everyone? Right. Um, how, how are all indigenous people and all colonized people connected in this struggle and how can we really come to understand this? Um, so when I think about black and brown indigenous folks, um, here's what I'm referring to, um, people who, sorry, that includes like South Asians in the Hindustan territory, right? That is a politically contested territory that has been deeply influenced and impacted by imperialism and colonialism, right? That includes aboriginals in Australia, that includes Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, right? That includes Africa, that includes the colonized, um, indigenous people on turtle island right so like that's that's how we need to be thinking if we're gonna if we're gonna get free right when we're talking about like the actual like revolution war type shit like that's what that's who all is gonna need to be brought to the table um and that's who all is black and brown indigenous communities right um and so because i feel like i've i've been fortunate enough to have so many experiences where I've picked up a lot of skills that, that are useful in organizing from like, even, you know, that Alinsky model shit, like that's helpful in some ways. Facilitation that I've learned, super helpful. The ability to be in graduate school and like dedicate time to studying black social movements, super helpful, right? All of these skills I know that I have, um, I, I'm just now realizing I'm a hella good facilitator and I'm a hella good educator and I know how to build a curriculum. And so I'm like, bet these are the tools, right? These are the tools and the resources that I wanna, that I wanna resource black and brown indigenous communities with um, in whatever ways that I can. So that, you know, coming back to Jaleel, we are our own liberators, right? Is, is letting folks know like, this is your power. Like you have power. You, you might not think you have power, but like come through to some agape movement, political education series so that you can see how you have power, um, both historically and in the present and how your people have, pow have had power historically and in the present. And then you can start to learn how to use that towards, towards your liberation and bring that back to your communities, right? So that you all can continue to, to work towards our, our collective liberation. Um, so that that's agape movement in a nutshell. Um, yeah, that's 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 that. And and love is is love is all in that. You gotta love. You gotta love the people. I, uh, that that's beautiful. And and I, I think this this hyper focus on love and community is is essential. Um, and I love that you also connect that to right this international struggle right with Latin America. America, with with Southeast Asia, with mm -hmm. West Asia, with right with all colonized people, with the people of Palestine. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's mad important too. And I, I mean, I was just talking about the homie earlier um, about how like how community was like crucial to his survival anywhere he was, whether that was back in the hood in Ohio, whether that was the hood in South Central, or whether that's him trying to navigate school now um, in higher ed. Like it was always like leaning on community. Be, right to pick up the extra stuff to help him survive those spaces mm -hmm. um, and I think I mean you you I think you encapture that perfectly right like if we as as comrades right can can fulfill our comrades needs our neighbors needs our siblings needs mm -hmm. that the state is failing to right then then that's building trust that's building that um, and I just love the way you highlight that so beautifully um, I think I mean that's really all we have for you in terms of questions is there anything um, you want to you want to wrap with um, free the people, free the land, all power to the people, free them all. Hey, <laughs> and I want to make sure folks know it's, um, on to, to check you out on Instagram, Agape Movement, that's at, um, Agape Movement, A-G-A-P-E-M-V-M-T. And I don't know if you want to drop your personal, that's up to you. 
Um, yeah, so y'all can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I'm like, y'all gonna have to get used to my sense of humor if you want to follow me on Twitter. Um, but it's M at M Charles five. Um, and then Instagram is Mel Charles five. I know some of y'all here today because y'all think jail is cool. But see, y'all wouldn't know nothing about that. I ain't cool about jail, nigga. I've been here 10 years, and I ain't never getting out. I ain't do much, just kill somebody. It ain't like the nigga ain't have it coming. He sure did. See, y'all think it's just about us in here. But this is about an oppressive system designed to keep niggas down and Y'all wouldn't know nothing about that. What about you, little nigga? You know about that? Yes. Oh, you know about that? Tell me what you know about that. Tell me what you think about that. The prison industrial complex is a system situated at the intersection of government and private interests. It uses prisons as a solution to social, political, and economic problems. It includes human rights violations, the death penalty, slave labor, policing, courts, the media, political prisoners, and the elimination of dissent. Nigga, did you just say what I was trying to say, but smarter?